Welcome to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show. All the way from Italy, champion of the people, below and above the water, protector and tracker of marine life for the people of Sydney and the world, designer of underwater maps to the next level, please welcome Marco Bordieri. Did I get your last name right, Marco? It's perfect. Hi, Ian. How are you? Never been called perfect before, but thank you very much. I normally start off by asking um, two questions. First one is, where did you learn to dive? Yeah, I learned when I was a teenager. I learned free diving by myself. I was living in Italy. Did you learn to scuba dive as well? Yeah, at some stage I started scuba diving when I was probably 30 years old. I got the certification because I realized that by free diving, I could only do so much. So I I went through a training. It was in Milan, so all the training was in the swimming pool. So it was pretty isolated. But then I, over the years, when whenever I went to some exotic destinations like uh, the Red Sea or um, the Maldives, I had the chance to do a little, little bit of diving, not too much, because the reality is that uh, if you live in Milan, Italy, you are far from the sea and the Mediterranean doesn't offer a lot. So the only chances to go diving, at least for the way I interpreted diving, was to wait for being a beautiful place and maybe do like three, four dives in a week. But also was with my family, so I couldn't disappear for a week of diving. So I had to kind of uh, compromise and try to keep everybody happy. And Marco, what would be your most memorable underwater experience? Probably the most memorable was, um, I wasn't uh, scuba diving. I was in in the Red Sea for um, scuba diving, but that morning I just took my mask and things and I went right in front of the resort. There is um, a jetty and then people just go snorkeling from there. I went into the water early morning, I think like seven o'clock. And uh, my family was still sleeping. And I was swimming and I just came across a whale shark. Oh, yeah. 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 It was so big. It was probably, I don't know, four meters long, two and a half. But most of all, I didn't know what it was because my culture in marine life was almost zero. Because again, I did not have experience. So I realized it was nothing dangerous because you could tell by the mouth that you know, didn't have any, any teeth. I just swam along and it was so unexpected. Now, if I look backwards, and I, I know you can have this experience if you go to to Ningalu Reef, for example, in the right season, you can you may go snorkeling with the whale shark. But that's such a kind of an industrial experience where you travel there, you pay someone to take you there, and you are sure or 90% sure to, to find them. And you are within a group, there are certain rules. So in a way, it's still an experience, but you start thinking about it so long in advance and organizing everything. While being in the water and seeing something that big without even knowing, well, first of all, I didn't know there were was anything like that over there because uh, nobody told me. I was just snorkeling in front of the resort and uh, not knowing what it was and being able to be just myself with this huge fish that was near the surface. So it was very easy just to snorkel along. So that was probably the most memorable because it was so unexpected and I was also so ignorant (laughs) that I was really amazed. Did anyone see you actually in that experience? 
or was it like something you got out of the water and you went, oh, I've got to go tell someone now? Yeah, I, I had a camera with me. Oh, did uh, you? It was a, a film camera that was probably 25 years ago. So it was uh, back then you did not have electronic cameras. I took some pictures and then um, I also asked the people from the resort. They said, oh, yeah, there could be, a, could be a whale shark. And I went the next morning and I find, I don't know whether it was the same one or another one, but it's funny how there were whale sharks swimming 10 meters from the resort and there was no notification, there was no communication of anything. I found that amazing because it was my private personal experience out of any any business or any expectation. So that was probably what why it's so magic. Was that the beginning of your love for the ocean? Yeah, definitely was uh, a, a key moment. But since uh, I was still living in Milan, you got busy with your life and family and the last thing you, you, you think about is uh, diving because it's just too far and too difficult to organize. And best case, I could drive to Genova, which is the closest point to where I live, facing the Mediterranean Sea. But even over there, there is not a lot of uh, options for diving. And uh, the Mediterranean Sea, at least in the north, doesn't offer much. So it was kind of a dormant uh, passion that... Um, made me think about the next holiday or maybe in a couple of years time I'll be, go, be going to some nice place and do some nice diving but um, I think it was meant to stay like that unless I moved to a place where diving was more accessible Ah, is that how you got to Sydney? Here we go <laughs> Well, I didn't come to Sydney for that I come because uh, probably was a little bit of a midlife crisis and I felt I needed to change something Some people buy a big motorbike uh, big car. Uh, in my case, I just wanted to change everything that was surrounding me. So at the age of uh, 46, so a little bit late in the process, I decided to move to Sydney. And then once I was in Sydney, you know, among all the different, everything is different. So uh, I start looking what options were offered by Sydney for, initially for snorkeling. So I started to do a little bit of research. I went snorkeling and uh, Ended up in Cabbage Tree Bay near Manly. That is, uh, was my first dive in Sydney. And uh, I remember being really disappointed because everybody was raving about Cabbage Tree Bay. Yep. I drove probably one hour. I was living in the West. You arrive there, you park, you walk, you get all your masks and things. And then I went to the water and there was no visibility. There was nothing to be seen. And I thought, oh, maybe these locals are just, um, you know, they have very low expectations. So whatever they see, it's, it's amazing. And I, I was coming from other places. I say, mm, probably Sydney doesn't offer that much. So that was my first um, experience. That gets me on to something that you've developed. And is it all right if we talk about Viz, the Facebook group? Well, it's all right with me. <laughs> I'm a member of a few Facebook groups, you know, like buddy finders groups and everything like that. But what I really find um, beautiful about the concept of Viz, that you're just not a buddy finding group. Could you explain more to us how it came about and how you're actually interacting with um, a lot more divers than any other Facebook group on um, on social media? After my experience in Cabbage Tree Bay, I went there a few other times. And I remember that actually other days were quite amazing. I saw a Port Jackson, which again, I didn't know what it was. I saw a Whoopi Gong and uh, a lot of creatures that I didn't see the, the first time. And I realized that big difference was the visibility in the water. But I was still living in the West, so how could I know the visibility? There is no service online that's telling you what's the visibility like. And you could die, you could call the dive shop. Normally the dive shop says it's always great <laughs> because they want to attract people. So I started thinking, wouldn't it be great if we had a way for divers that just finish a dive 
snorkelers, anyone going in the water to be able to inform other divers uh, what the conditions are like. And uh, so I started a group called VIZ. VIZ, V-I-Z, is the short name in the, in the diving environment for visibility. You might be asked if you leave the water, how is the VIZ, which means how is the visibility. So I said, okay, let's use VIZ, which seems to be a, a, a way to refer to visibility. This group is called VIZ. Sydney Diving Visibility Reports, because that's the goal. It's about Sydney, so we don't do anything other than Sydney, kind of a proudly local. It's about diving, so going underwater, and it's about visibility reports. Yeah. Tell me what's the visibility like after you dive. And the idea was to encompass every sort of users that go underwater. So we are welcoming uh, scuba divers, free divers, fishers, and snorkelers. So whoever has a mask and whoever has a, an interest in knowing this uh, visibility. Initially, I enrolled my probably five, six friends that I knew back then. Again, I was totally new to the to the scene, the underwater scene. I have very few friends locally. And I said, guys, why don't we just post the condition? Some of them are luckier than me. They live uh, near Manly. They, would, they, they were able to post more frequently. So we started and in very little time got 100, 1,000 and pick up very, very fast. Well, nowadays we are 12,500. It's uh, actually the largest Facebook community of any water sport in Australia. And when did this start? I started in uh, 2019. So four years ago. Okay. It was actually on Ocean Day. It's interesting because I didn't plan to do it on, on Ocean Day, which is the 8th of June. On that day, I remember seeing some posts and I always had this idea we should create a community of people sharing. And, you know, if you keep thinking about something, but you never act. And then on that day, I said, well, wait a minute. I think today... <laughs> Actually, I should do something. And that's when I started the group. It's one of those things. It's like the telephone. No, if only two people have the telephone, they, there is a limited uh, utility. But uh, as the network grows, then it becomes more and more interesting. Nowadays, we got uh, a wide participation across you know, all the different interest groups. Yeah. Is there any factors affecting the visibility in the ocean, like around... Sydney more than anywhere else or is it the same sort of natural things that happen that create the visibility? Well, we live in a incredibly rich environment. By the way, I was talking about the Mediterranean. So the Sydney Arbor has more species than the whole Mediterranean Sea as 600 species. So it's a very rich environment, but it's also very variable because we have the the arbor, which is uh, an estuary of uh, the Paramatta River. Then we have uh, the ocean, and uh, there are a number of conditions that uh, may impact the visibility in and out of the arbor. Now, the principles are the same as in the rest of the world. Could be the wind, uh, the wind chop, could be the waves, could be the current, could be the tides, could be the pollution from land, could be the runoff after a big storm. The way these factors interact, it's um, almost unpredictable. At the moment, we don't have uh, any system, any service to tell you what con the conditions are going to be like. The reason is that uh, if it could be possible if we installed enough sensors in the ocean and then we fed uh, some artificial intelligence with all the patterns and then we could correlate visibility with wind, uh, with temperature, with sun and clouds and everything. That would be possible, but simply there is no economic driver. So as much as we can predict everything happening above the water, 
you know, the temperature, the wind, the humidity, everything is so perfectly forecasted. Who will benefit from this information underwater? Only the recreational divers, yeah. because there is no, you know, economic activity happening underwater. So there's no interest. And it could actually have the opposite effect where, like, especially with boat operators, when you book a boat, you got to go out in the boat that day. It doesn't matter what the visibility is like. Yeah. So if there's less good vis days... Absolutely. The business needs continuity. Yeah. If people were choosing when go diving with the, with the dive center based on the prediction of visibility, there would be a problem because, you know, you are paying for employees and uh, the boat and everything. You, you need continuity if you're running a, a diving business. The less is predicted and the better it is from that perspective. Yeah, it's a bit like beer, isn't it? There's only two types, good beer and better beer. <laughs> that. One of the things that really impressed me with your Facebook page is you've got a website as well. Could you let the people out there know a little bit more about your underwater tracking? Because yes, I find it absolutely fascinating and a brilliant concept of what you're doing. Yeah, sure. Um, just let's step back uh, to our three goals because Everything that I will be mentioning is related to three goals of our initiative. So one is enhancing the underwater experience. Yeah. And that's namely, you know, the sharing of visibility reports, which is not just the visibility, you know, five meters, 10 meters, but also we like, we encourage people to share what they've seen. So the species, sometimes there are some very interesting species that you can see. So that's one. The second one is enhancing the public awareness of marine life and that's something that we do more um, outside of the group in our uh, contact with the general public and we also do the radio and the third one is advancing knowledge with novelty assets so we we try to create assets which are new which are innovative one of them has been uh, the tracking of marine life now tracking marine life is not new you know in the sense that for example if we look at the turtles yeah Tarunga Zoo has been placing uh, transmitters on the back of the turtles so for specific individuals they can track all the navigation and the migration of these turtles from Sydney. Normally they go up or then they come back some stage. But we never add a variability of presence patterns. So instead of looking where a turtles goes, let's look at uh, Cabbage Bay. How many turtles come visiting in one year? To know how many turtles, you need to understand whether it's the same one or they're all different. Could be 20 turtles or could be the same one just coming back 20 times. Again, part of this uh, promotion of asking uh, divers to post what they see, but also to post pictures, especially for turtles. So with a lot of uh, time and patience, we don't have uh, artificial intelligence doing the work for us. I look at each picture that gets posted and looking at uh, the cracks on the head of the turtle, I'm able to recognize this is an individual that was already mapped. I check against my database or oh, this is a new one. So let's track this new sighting. So far, I've been collecting 74 individuals over the last four years. And for each individual, we have a little bit of a history. So we know, for example, that um, the two most uh, found in uh, Cabbage Tree Bay, they've been around for four years. Well, for four years. Till, uh, since we started the tracking. Beautiful. Yeah, some of them have been staying there basically all year long. So yeah. probably in four years, there will just been a couple of months that they haven't been sighted. But uh, they're totally, you know, locals. While others tend to come and go. A few things we've been discovering with this system. We never found a turtle yeah. in two different sites. So we have like uh, 12 sites that we monitor. Traditionally, they are dive sites with Cornell. We have uh, La Perouse. We have 
have uh, cabbage tree bay and, and different places, about 13. We never found the turtle in, in two sites, which means that they either they stay in one place, could be one week, could be one month, could be three months. Sometimes they disappear for nine months, for example, and then they come back. But even after nine months, they are able to probably migrating from north. So we don't know where they go when they are not around. That's the question for the Tarungas too. <laughs> but we can definitely tell how much they stay in one place. They always come back in the same place. So somehow they are able to, in the murky water sometimes, as they come down from, uh, from north, they are able to identify the same spot, the same site where probably they find the ideal condition for them. Do you um, share this information with um, like other data sites like iNaturalist or scientists or universities? or The information is there and every time we have uh, a new information collected, like an update to the statistics, we publish them. Everything is available on the website, which is vids with a Z, dot net, dot au. It's a hats-free website, so there are no ads. One of the few left, probably. All the information is there. They can download the, the data. They can download the high-resolution PDF. And we've been sharing them with uh, all the stakeholders we're in touch with. And we have a number of them also in the academic world with the uh, University of Tasmania and the UTS, for example. We also group the sightings. And what we have found out that every year there's quite a consistent information over time. The month of July, you have four times more probability to spot a turtle compared to January. There must be a higher presence in winter because if you think few people go diving or snorkeling in July because the water is cold compared to January, even if without taking that into account, we still have four times more sightings of individuals in July than in January. So must be there is a clear pattern of presence. They must be coming to Sydney in July for some reason and they're mostly juvenile. So they are not breeding. Yes, that's correct. They must have some reason for which in when the, the weather gets cold, they come to Sydney, which again is counterintuitive because normally it's the opposite when, when it's cold you go north and not the way the way around. Do you think it might have something to do with the sea grasses, especially in Cabbage Tree Bay and places like that? Uh well the seagrass, the paddle seagrass, which is the type of seagrass they eat. But well, they eat also other things, not just the seagrass, they also eat the, the jellyfish. Um, well, the seagrass is there all year round. Now, that's the thing. We are observers. We we are not uh, playing uh, the scientist role. So we need to acknowledge that there is something we can state. We can definitely state that there is a trend every year because it's been repeated. We can definitely, you know, say that this turtle has been around for four years or one month or two months. But why they do that, that's not our scope. That's something that uh, we are not uh, you know, entitled to say. That's for the scientists to say, we're looking at our data and looking at other data they have access. They are the ones that uh, have the answer of the why. We can also only say the what. Yeah, that's a fair call. You were saying that it's a three prongs. So... What are the other parts of the... Our mission? Yeah, your yeah, mission for Viz. Yeah, sure. This is, uh, I would say, under the the category of uh, advancing knowledge of a novelty asset. One is that, for example, the turtle I mentioned, but also we track 10 other species. Again, we wanted to check whether there is a seasonality. So if you've been diving in Sydney for many years, you know, for example, that the, the, that the giant cuttlefish comes every year in... Um, May and leaves around August. Well, we know the people that are used to be diving quite for a long time, they've noticed this pattern. 
but many other people that are not, uh, you know, that uh, uh, long timers, they don't know about this. And also, we don't know whether it's the same every year or it changes. So again, collecting the postings that have appeared on our feed, we've been looking, for example, when is the first port Jackson Sharks coming to, let's say, Cabbage Tree Bay? And what was the temperature of the water when they came? And we can see that, for example, they normally come in, in July. And when is the last one? The last one is normally around November. And the cuttlefish has its own seasonality. We've been looking also at the, the little penguin. There are little penguins in uh, near mainly on the arbor side. Sometimes they go around and they can be seen in Cabbage Tree Bay, for example. They go you know, around the headline. And again, yeah, that happens like January to, to March usually. There is a, a funny fish, it's called the Eastern Goblegat. And it's a very small fish, but it's special because uh, the, the male is um, protecting the eggs. So the male receives the eggs from the female, but doesn't have a pouch, like, uh, you know, differently from the seahorses. He doesn't have a pouch to put them in anywhere. So the only option is to hold them in the mouth. Yeah. So you find this fish, a tiny fish with a huge ball of 1,000 eggs in the mouth. Oh, where? Wow. I don't know. I can breathe and eat, but uh, it's a very <laughs> special sightings. And again, we wanted to check when is this happening. And so it's happening every year in October. And, and three days ago was actually the first one that was sighted for this season, all the way to April. So if you want to see uh, Eastern Goblegards, with this huge ball of uh, orange eggs in the mouth, you have to go to Clifton Gardens and you have to go between uh, October and um, uh, April. So that's another information. Other species we've been trying to capture, a seasonality, the granular sharks, they are quite often in Cabbage Tree Bay. They don't seem to have a pattern. So sometimes we haven't identified a pattern. Sometimes we have. The, en the angel shark is also more likely to happen between May and September. And the dusky weather shark, it's from normally January all the way to June. Beautiful. The bull sharks in Sydney Harbour. Do you know much about the seasons of when they go in and when they come out? Yes, that's not due to something we have. Uh, it's not part of an asset because we don't have the means to, you know, have a statistic. <laughs> yeah, we don't have... A sensors and we don't go in the water when they are around well at least not <laughs> i'm being relying on the information that has been published by dpi okay i've been interviewing uh, doctors uh, amy smoothie we have been collecting all the information again this is something that is available on the same website there is a page dedicated to the bull sharks turns out that many people even divers they they don't know this information is available so the novelty asset here was to have an interview with simple terms but also possibly to go deeper in detail if they wanted with all the links that word novelty asset what does that exactly mean like i've um... yeah what i mean is novelty asset i mean we we produce assets so the statistics about the turtle um, the statistics about the 10 species but even in interview so we produce a, an artifact um, an asset a, a piece of paper a, a web page a research that wasn't available before oh, okay maps yes. are also another type of asset so it's something that we add to the public knowledge it's all for free nothing to pay people can enjoy can learn even this interview on the bull sharks for me is a novelty asset because we collect information from different sources and talking about the bull sharks they're quite interesting and a lot of information wasn't known to many people so the bull sharks come to the arbor 
around October, November, whenever the temperature goes above 20 degrees. So now it's 19. I was diving yesterday in the Middle Harbor. It's 19, so I felt pretty safe, but uh, it's probably the last dive of the of the season for me. So when it gets to 20, they come into the harbor, they come in towards the Paramatta River, um, Middle Harbor, and they stay all the way to Germany, May, when the water gets below 20. Okay. And we're talking about a large cohort of sharks because out of 87 bull sharks that have been tagged, because the way you measure the presence of a shark, we don't have, you know, uh, radars. Yeah. The only way to measure it is if you catch a shark, you tag a shark with uh, an acoustic finger that creates a noise, and then there are sensor microphones, basically in the arbor, measuring the pressure. Okay. So out of 87 sharks, bull sharks that have been tagged between 2009 and 2022, there was a peak during the summer period. Up to 18 bull sharks has been detected in the arbor on a single day. On a single day, the sensor found 18 bull sharks in the arbor. Now, the arbor is very big, and the sensors are all the way to the Paramatta River. Oh, wow. Still, <laughs> I would think twice before going afar. It's okay if you stay where it's shallow. They tend to be a little bit deep. We have to be mindful that there are 18 bull sharks, and, uh, you know, we don't want to repeat what happened in 2009 with the Navy diver Paul de Gelder at uh, Bulumulu Bay. Yep. He lost one arm and one leg. Again, the study on the bull shark started after this event in 2009, because finally somebody decided to give science a chance to check whether there was a seasonality. And Marcia Hathaway, she lost her life in Middle Harbor in 1963. She was an actress. Yeah. Again, nobody knew when they were coming because we didn't have the, the, the way to, to discover the seasonality. Yeah, that's fascinating. Going from bull sharks now, can we talk about your mapping? When I started uh, snorkeling and diving in Sydney, there is a great website by Michael McFadden. Again, it's the same concept. It's a, a free website. Everything is, is made on the volunteering basis, so there is no, no interest in, in, in anything economic. So he did a great job for 20 years. He has been updating this site, and you can find all the dive sites very well described, but sometimes they don't have a map, or the map doesn't make a lot of sense to me, at least when I when I read it without knowing the site. Because it's kind of a, it's, it's a sketch with high-level uh, features of, of the place. So a few times I've been diving and we've been trying to follow the instructions, like uh, you go 20 meters and then you go left and then you go right. But most of the time I will get lost. Yeah. So I said, well, probably what I need is, is a map, an underwater map. So I can plan my dive, I can memorize the features, and then when I go underwater, I can try not to get lost. Now, the problem with underwater maps, there is no technology available to do a proper mapping because the best maps available are, it's a public website called SEED, S-E-E-D. They've been sharing different surveys. They've been doing with different scanners, but the resolution is still uh, very low. So I think every pixel is like five meters. So they are good for uh, planning uh, where to, you know, deploy a, a pipeline in the water, for example, or for navigation, but for recreational diving, we just don't have the level of detail to use them. So what I started doing was uh, to go underwater with a 360 camera and um, trailing a GPS on the surface. Okay. So the, the GPS doesn't work underwater. Even under five centimeters, the signal from the satellite is 
too weak. And by the way, the water is also a, a shield for uh, radio waves, so it wouldn't go far anyway, even if it was stronger. And the only way you can track your position when you're on the water is if you trail a boy with his GPS. I started uh, little by little doing some experiments, trailing this GPS on the surface. So there is a line attached to myself. And then when I go on the water, I follow a specific pattern and uh, 360 camera which is recording all the surroundings and also the camera is recording a compass which is just in front of the camera so I know which direction I was going and also a depth meter so I knew how deep I was. Beautiful. What I do is I go swimming. Let's say I'm mapping Bear Island, which is probably one of the biggest sites. Yeah. As I swim underwater, I record the video and then back home, I reconcile the GPS information that I got from this uh, boy with the GPS receiver with the video that I recorded, the direction I was holding because I got the compass within the frame of the video and also the depth. I got all the information I need because I can see their surroundings. They say, oh, there is a rock to my left, five meters away. So I know where I was. I know which direction I was pointing because in the video I can see the compass. And I can draw on the map this uh, rock. And little by little, you end up, if you invest enough time, because it took me like 200 hours to, mm-hmm. to map the Bear Island site, which is huge, is 200,000 square meters. But... Uh, I think I did like 25 dives. With given enough time and patience, you end up with a map that, you know, in 100 years, the sand line may move a little bit, clearly with uh, the current, the precise sand line where the rock meets the sand could move a little bit, definitely. But in 100 years, there was a a reef and the shape of the reef, the depth of the reef, it's going to be more or less the same. So it's it's a bit of an investment. It is a massive investment. Like I know dive masters do mapping projects to get their dive masters certificate. This is next level mapping. Yeah, it's very labor intensive. That's why nobody will have done it and will do it unless they get paid. (laughs) But you can't sell a map, honestly. You know, even if you if you create a PDF, people are going to share the PDF. So it must be powered by some passion and goodwill and interest in sharing. So yes, the dive master, they do part of their training. Uh, it's um, to draw um, a map. But everything that you do in this way, it's kind of, um, it's very subjective because after the dive, you draw your map with your memory and some notes you, you've taken. But it's still subjective because, you know, sometimes you, you swim in an area which has nothing interesting. And then you think it was so long, it was... <laughs> Maybe it was 100 meters, but actually it was only 50. Just because it was boring, you get the sensation that that area was longer. So you're not objective when you draw a map based on your memory because you are distracted by what is in the water. Is the maps that you've done so far of just the Sydney region, have you branched out to the central coast or the south coast? No, at the moment I've mapped all the dive sites in Sydney. I haven't thought about going elsewhere. A little bit because I don't know the sites very well and I wouldn't go there quite often and there are less people diving there and probably they know the sites already. Sydney, I see as the place where newcomers come, like, uh, you know, could be a a student, uh, could be someone, uh, a migrant coming to the area and thinking how would have been beneficial to me when I came to Sydney Having those maps, I see most of the radio. So, no, I'm focused on Sydney, but I've done most of the sites like uh, 
Checkpoint, Cornell, Bear Island, Cabbage Tree Bay, Clifton Gardens. Clifton Gardens is interesting because it, it's in the harbor, so it's not very complicated to map. But there are a number of items underwater that people may want to find and to work a little bit on their navigation skills. And do you see this as a sort of like an individual citizen science project? Because what you're doing is 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 mapping things for the future, and it's like really good data for um, everything, really. The users of these maps are definitely the recreational users, for example. Sometimes I go diving at uh, Cornell, where I don't go very often, and I'm in a car park getting changed. And sometimes people recognize me and come to introduce themselves. And, you know, normally they thank me for using the map, for the map that has been published. And that's a huge reward for me. But also the, the researchers and the scientists, they do surveys. They are interested in knowing, uh, you know, in planning the survey. For example, knowing that there is an area with a lot of cauliflower, soft cauliflower coral. It's interesting because it's an endangered species, so they want to, to get there. So they're definitely using the maps for planning their activities. And there have been instances where divers have been finding pieces in places that were not known. So, for example, we found uh, an instance, a colony of uh, Bosilopora alice, which is coral, a green coral. And normally, in the past, was found only, I think, Newcastle was the southernmost. Then, 10 years ago, was found by John Sear, a friend of mine. He found it in um, Cabbage Tree Bay, outside of Cabbage Tree Bay. But last year, it was found off to Broad Head. Okay. And that officially, even if you go to iNaturalist, which is uh, the point of reference for, for uh, all these um, sightings and observations, that's the southernmost point of this coral in the world. We informed the researcher from UTS and actually I took them over there to establish a transect. The transect is an area that they keep as a reference for future surveys. So they go one year, they take a picture, measurements, and then they go and after another year and they see the change that has been happening. Fantastic. Have you ever dived any sites, new sites, and then thought, gee, this is worth mapping? Um, sometimes I've been doing um, places in the arbor that were quite interesting. So to provide, I don't know whether it's a new site. I think, I mean, someone has been diving the Broid. I'm not saying I was the first one, of course. It's just not uh, a recurring site where dive center will take you there. Yeah. Another one is uh, Middlehead. It's another very interesting dive site. So the Broid, Middlehead, I've been producing maps for those. I think they are quite underrated. But the reason is that it's difficult to get there. I have a, a sea scooter, which is like a, a small torpedo. It's an electric device. Oh, fantastic. It's so much fun. It can take you up to five kilometers away. But then you have to check your air and also you have to take into account what if it stops working and I don't want to be five kilometers from uh, the exit point. So it's tricky. But yeah, some places have been a little bit of a revelation for me and uh, I don't think they were known enough in the past. And is there anything unusual that you've actually discovered while you've been doing this mapping? Um, I found a old anchor, an admiralty anchor, which um, wasn't uh, mapped in the Office of Heritage list. So I contacted them. I said, look, I found this anchor looks very old. It's disposition in the broid head. Okay. They knew it was there. They simply have never published a study. They, they were thinking to take pictures and publish. So in that case, I didn't discover anything. They knew, but just wasn't public knowledge because it wasn't communicated to the public. No new wrecks. Look, the thing is that um, some people have been cheating. <laughs> 
I use this term because people go with uh, bots and they have, um, you know, sonar scanners and also magnetometers. Oh, yeah. So this uh, device can identify parts made of uh, metal. So in a way, they just can just scan an area back and forth, back and forth till they find something. I say cheating, but it's, 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 I, I don't mean it. It's just because um, I like the idea of exploring in first person, going underwater and finding stuff. If you have a boat, you just scan the surface and you're going to find everything. That's how they found, for example, the Japanese midget submarine a few years ago of uh, of Sydney, of uh, the northern beaches. Yes. That's a group of amateurs had uh, a boat and uh, with, uh, with the scanner, with the sonar, they found the structure. So it's hard to find a wreck. You find a lot of stuff, which is something, it's... Uh, the conglomerate of metal and uh, maybe some wood, but it's been so old and so damaged that you can't really tell. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. And where is your favourite dive site? I think I'm, I get easily bored. <laughs> so uh, my favourite dive site is the next dive, and I try every week to go where I've never been before, and the, clearly the sea scooter I mentioned, it's uh, instrumental to that, because with the sea scooter you can start uh, where everybody starts the dive from the beach but then you can go quite afar so i try to go every week in a different place most of the times i find nothing but i like the idea to visit something which is new for me and possibly for other people that said cabbage tree bay it's very rich all year round as i say there is a resident turtle you need to be lucky to find it being able to get into the water to park walk down to the beach get into the water and see a turtle which i always associated with some tropical destination it's quite amazing you can find also granular sharks or, or jackson sharks that's probably one of my favorite uh, places but then if you are into macro life then maybe clifton gardens is where you find all this nudibranch that uh, has been mentioned in a previous podcast that's where you know you find all these very small things especially if you go at night that's when they come out hunting and um, yeah i think there is a place for each taste totally agree with you and do you dive all year round a few years ago i i bought a dry suit which is like a wetsuit but keeps you dry well it's supposed to keep you dry then i get some leaks because i i <laughs> abuse of it and I only have some some little cuts and holes here and there but the idea is that you can you know just wear tracky pants and t-shirt and get into this um, container which is this dry suit and you stay dry inside so I bought it for the winter time when the temperatures goes down to 15 degrees at times and then I just got to use I use it all year round and in summertime you just uh, wear less uh, undergarments you know that to not, not be too hot yeah all year round so you've climatized to the dry suit <laughs> yeah and also look in winter you can find uh, actually dives are normally better in winter because the water is uh, normally more transparent there is uh, less algae in the water, uh, phytoplankton, so it's better condition in winter. It's colder, yes, but there are less divers, many species. And more parking. More parking, definitely. Cabbage Bay in, in, in summer, it's uh, it's uh, impossible. And um, But also many species come for winter, so I mentioned the projection, the giant cuttlefish, the turtles. There's just more life in the water in winter. Is there any dive sites on your wish list? Uh, there are some wrecks a little bit um, offshore, which I can't reach safely with my scooter. One site is called the the apartment. Yes. It's a site near Long Reef. That's like two kilometers from land. So it's um, I could, in theory, get there with a scooter and come back. But then if something goes wrong, I find myself 
few meters offshore. I do have a little radio, a little device that if I press it, sends my coordinates, sends an alarm to the bots and to my rescue, telling her that something is happening in this location and someone needs help, but I never use it. And uh, hopefully <laughs> it works if I need it. Hopefully you never have to use it. Yeah, but it's, it's good to have it. And it's always with me. It's a small device. It's like a small packet of cigarettes in a way, in terms of size. It can make the difference. Have you ever dived at Nelson Bay? Uh, yeah, I dived a couple of times. It's very interesting. It's protected, so it's normally um, dive, easy to dive all year round. And uh, got a little bit of a like in the arbor. You can find the uh, microlife like uh, Nudibranch and uh, some pelagic sometimes they come in. Yeah, it's a very good site. It's just uh, far. I mean, far. You have to invest. Uh, you can do. You cannot do it in one day. It's a bit of a drive. So it's something that you do in the weekend. That, that's right. Marco, what is the next project or asset for this? Oh, I've been thinking about that all the time because um, I tend to think that with enough fantasy, there is always something to be developed. The map, I think was a good idea, but that's mostly done for Sydney. It is what it is. Yeah. I don't have anything in mind yet. We are now kind of um, focusing on the human elements of our um, community. So, for example, there are people that have been contributing so much to the community. They've been posting every two, three days for the last three, four years. We want to recognize them. So now we have uh, a featured visa post. So we run an interview to all these major contributors. They answer some questions. They, they, they post pictures about themselves. So it's not about the fish, but uh, what are your passion? When did you start? A little bit like this interview, but um, to focus on the, on the humans behind all those posts. And that's a recognition for their investment in the community, but it's also to build a better community where it's not just about knowing what fish and what how many meters of visibility who are these guys that go diving three times a week and uh, spend so much time posting so this is um, a small initiative that we are running um something that we also um, we're working on is to have um, an interview with uh, dan the divers alert network it's an organization that many people don't know too, too well myself I heard for the first time when I was going on holiday somewhere overseas and the day I was asked to have uh, an insurance, yeah. uh, a diving insurance. So if something happens, I, I get uh, airlift to some uh, chamber in order to, to recover. So that was the only instance where I heard about them. But they also provide uh, more information about safety. It's not a big project. It's just a little initiative, but we are running an interview. So we will publish in the community the result of this interview for everybody knows, for example, what this organization is doing, where they can find more resources for safe diving. For example, nobody tracks the fatalities in diving. They do uh, with some limitation because they only access public available information. Incidents and fatalities in diving are never a popular subject in the conversation. The, the business don't talk too much about that because for obvious reason, people tend to forget about them. Yet every accident as a cause could be a user error, could be a device error, collection of causes. But unfortunately, if you look at the airplane industry, the aviation industry, every time there is an accident, there is an investigation and everything that has been discovered goes back into a circle and uh, modify the policies if it's required in order to have a, a safer rules in place. With diving, unfortunately, we don't have this um, closed loop. The coroner creates a report, maybe after one year, we don't get to see the report. It doesn't go into the news because the news are about somebody passing out, somebody dying. A year ago? Yeah, they, they, they only talk when it happens, but then after one year, 
you, you don't find the news in the newspaper saying, oh, remember last year, this was the cause. It's just not useful. No, it's not just not presented in the news. So this is something I'm quite passionate because more or less every year there is at least a fatality, or at least one that I'm aware of every year. Nobody wants to talk about that after a couple of days. And that's a pity because maybe that person made a mistake that could be my next mistake. Anyway, that's just a little initiative and having a conversation with Dan, who to my knowledge is the only organization which is doing something that direct. That sounds like Viz has got a lot more to give. Uh, we just have to think and uh, I'm sure there is a lot more we can do. We we have limited resources because we, we don't collect donations and... Uh, we don't sell anything. Everything is available for free online. We don't have any advertisement. We allow business to do advertisement for free on Mondays. Yeah. But that's just uh, a respect for them because they provide services and equipment. Yeah. We want to help the employment in, in that industry. So we don't have any, any revenue of any kind. So everything that we want to do has to fit within the scope of uh, volunteering. Some ideas are good, but then you say, okay, but we need some money to start with we don't have money okay let's think about something else which is for free this has been a fascinating interview and i really appreciate all all your input and i could probably talk to you for about another hour but i'm going to have to wrap things up from the bottom of my heart and i know from the bottom of the heart of a lot of divers in sydney thank you very much for being proactive within the dive community and thank you for um yeah being proactive in in everything it's it's just absolutely a pleasure to meet people like yourself and where can we find more information and how can we help you oh it's been a pleasure for me and thank you for inviting me well probably the best way to um, get in touch or I would say to is to consume what we produce if there is an interest so they, there are different avenues so every Saturday morning 6.15 we have a little segment on ABC Radio Sydney we've been doing that for 160 weeks it's a bit of a commitment waking up uh, at past five in the morning. But uh, every time we talk about something happening on the water, we give a little bit of a citizen science update. So one avenue is to listen to ABC Radio 6.15 on Saturday. Another one is to follow the Sydney Underwater Gazette Facebook page. So that's a page where it's mostly for us to um, communicate the news to the people that are not in the group. Can we find a recording on that if we don't wake up at quarter past six? Normally, yes. We also have um, a YouTube channel. If you search for Sydney Underwater Gazette on YouTube, you will find the channel and most of the interviews are there. Okay. Then we have the, the group, which is, the group is kind of the engine of everything. It's where we collect all the reports and all the engagement. That's uh, called VITS, uh, Sydney Diving Exhibit Reports. Yeah. And the last one where if people are not interested in connecting with other divers or getting the latest because maybe that's not their thing, they can still find uh, the all the key assets, the novelty assets that I mentioned like uh, maps or research or uh, interviews or statistics on the webpage, which is this.net.au. Beautiful. Thank you very much for that, Marco. My pleasure, Ian. It's been great. You've been listening to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show.